the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter Four, Ruby Arrives. The half hour was up. Martin stepped out onto the deck and shut off the little generator. It rumbled down to a stop, but had been loud enough to leave an echo in Martin's ears. The trouble was, the echo didn't fade away. There was another motor. A motorcycle was coming over the rise and down their road. Martin felt for the small revolver in his pocket, mostly to reassure himself that he still had it with him. He took a few steps down the hill to get a better look at whoever it was was driving by. A big maroon Harley rolled into view, its big throaty engine mostly idling. As it turned into his driveway, he could see that it was pulling a trailer. The big man riding the Harley got off and pulled off his helmet. "'Pastor John?' Martin said, both surprised and relieved. "'Hey there, Martin. Fine day for the Lord's Day, eh?' "'Uh, yes it is, but what brings you way out here, and more importantly, what's that?' Martin pointed to the homemade trailer. "'A Harley with a trailer?' There has got to be something in the Bible prohibiting that. Pastor John laughed. Ha! <laughs> oh, you might be thinking of Second Corinthians 6. Be ye not unequally yoked. But I'm pretty sure he didn't mean Harleys and trailers. Martin laughed. Well, that's good, but seriously, a trailer? And it's made of plywood. Yeah, well, the bike was a better way to make my pastoral rounds than in my truck. Better fifty miles a gallon than fifteen. But not a lot of cargo capacity to the bike, so my father-in-law got to thinking. You know how he is. Ain't nothing can't be done with some plywood and drywall screws. Pastor John mimicked his father-in-law's Canadian accent. Yeah, that and Kenny's old bike donated the wheels. Pretty sure that isn't road legal, but I suppose no one's too fussy these days. But what did you need the cargo space for? Martin peered under the canvas cover, bungeed in place. "'Pastor John!' Margaret called out from the front steps. "'What on earth are you doing here?' "'I was kind of getting to that. "'Since the power's been out all over, "'pretty much everyone in the church has been homebound. "'I've been going around to see how everybody is "'and whether you needed anything, etc.' "'He flung back the canvas cover. "'I've been picking up some extras that people have "'and letting others take what they need. "'Canned goods, water, stuff like that. "'Kind of a care package on wheels.' Uh, how are you folks getting by out here? Well, we're doing pretty good, said Martin. Margaret gave him a furrowed brow look. Well, pretty good. Margaret rummaged through the plywood box, but quickly seized a small loaf of bread. Is this one of Connie's loaves? she asked with a hint of Christmas morning in her voice. It is, said John. I just came from their place. She just got done baking a batch, so put one in. Oh, this is so cool, she said clutching the loaf to her chest. I just love her sourdough. I'll go get some things to add to your supply. She turned and rushed up the front walk. How are Connie and Rick getting on? Martin asked. Got a few calls from people on the landline until it finally gave out, but no word from Connie. Yeah, they're doing okay. Kind of like you and Margaret. Rick's a little worried about the Indian Lakes area, though. People have been coming out of Manchester and setting up camps in the woods all around the lakes. He's had to chase off a few that came around begging or trying to take stuff. He keeps his 12-gauge with him all the time now. Have you guys had any trouble like that? 
John dropped his voice. Need any ammo or anything? No, I think we're good there, said Martin. Thanks, though. Actually, we've not seen any beggars. Could be our road is too out of the way. Still, we try to be ready. He pressed on his coat pocket to make the revolver print. Margaret came out with a half a dozen items in her arms. Here's a box of pasta, a couple of jars of my tomato sauce, some jam, and some of my green beans. Who are you going to visit next? John cleared his throat and shuffled his feet. Well, actually, I came to ask you guys something else. I'm, uh, gonna go visit Ruby next. I was at her place yesterday. A lot of residents in her assisted living building are gone. Manager seems to be gone, too. Eats out, and I'm worried she won't make it if she's there alone like that. So I was, uh, wondering if, uh, you guys would, uh, you know, um, take her in? Margaret's smile faded. Her shoulders dropped, too. Her look reflected how Martin felt on the inside. Another person, consuming what little supplies they had. Christian duty clashed with self-preservation instinct. Martin's conscience reminded him of his previous inner arguments for allowing Susan to stay with them. It would not take any more lamp oil to have Ruby there. It wouldn't take any more firewood either. How were Susan and Ruby any different? On a purely rational level, they should be the same, but they weren't. He came within hailing distance of admitting that Susan might be more than just another surprise houseguest, but his mind veered off of that admission. Practical objections were a handy refuge. Ruby wouldn't be able to help around the house. If anything, she'd become a maintenance chore herself instead of helping with chores. Ruby also tended to be emotionally draining in long exposures. Yes, he quickly decided that that was the difference. I know at times she can be a little... But, uh, but she likes you guys. You give her rides to church every Sunday and doctor's appointments... I know she and family, but you're the closest thing she has to family. John held his salesman's smile while he looked back and forth from Martin to Margaret, hoping for a yes look. Driving Ruby to church was a charity by default, since no one else in the congregation drove past her building. Martin was sometimes amused by her repeated stories about her childhood in Maine. He knew them so well, he could repeat them with Ruby. She was like a story iPod set to shuffle. Margaret was less amused, having spent more time with Ruby at doctor's offices or helping her around her apartment. That was when she sometimes turned cranky. Margaret heaved a big sigh. Sure, we'll be happy to take her in. Martin could hear the hollow sincerity in her word, happy. Margaret took her duty to Christian charity seriously, but sometimes the joy part was elusive. Oh, great, great, John looked visibly relieved. I'll bring her around in maybe an hour. He secured the canvas cover, mounted his bike. I really appreciate this, guys. Make sure to bring all the food in her cupboards and the fridge with her, said Margaret. We need everything we can get for have another mouth to feed. Will do, said John. The big Harley roared to life and made a wide circle around to accommodate the trailer. An hour, Margaret said. She hurried into the house. We're getting another guest, Margaret told Susan. I want her to have Lindsay's room, so you'll have to move your things into Dustin's old room. Uh, okay. Uh, there's not much to move, said Susan. She followed Margaret to the corner bedroom 
and began pulling her clothes out of the closet. Margaret pulled all the bedding off of the bed in one mighty double-armed scoop. Martin tidied up the desk in the smaller bedroom, putting away his gun-cleaning mess and his open books. A new guest? Susan asked him. Yeah, Ruby, an older lady from church. Pastor John is going to bring her around in an hour. She has always been kind of alone, but the way things are, she couldn't stay by herself. I think Margaret wanted her to have Lindsay's room since it's bigger. Ruby's not too good at mobility. Dustin's old room is probably too cramped for her. Oh, that's okay. I kind of like the bookshelves and the desk in here. It has a sort of a library feel to it. Ha, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since Dustin's been on his own and married, his room morphed into the semi-office uh, with a twin bed. I hear him coming, shouted Martin from the front walk. Are you ready? No, came the reply from the house. Martin chuckled and said to himself, Well, they're coming anyhow. Pastor John pulled in, with Ruby riding behind him. Wearing his helmet, she looked like a white polyester bobblehead. Martin stepped over to help John get Ruby dismounted. That was the most fun I've had in years, Ruby said. We were going so fast. Uh, forty, John said out of the side of his mouth. I've always wanted to ride on a motorcycle ever since I was a little girl up in Maine. Martin sensed the mailman on motorcycle story coming on, but standing in the cold driveway wasn't a good time for it. Uh, where's your things, Ruby? I'll carry them inside for you. Huh? Uh, oh, my clothes are in that canvas bag there, and my bathroom things are in that pink bag. Oh, you're such a dear, Martin. Margaret came to the front steps. Hello again, Pastor. Hello, Ruby. How have you been? Oh, you know, Ruby began, my legs have been acting up again, and I'm just sure my coumadin isn't right. Those doctors keep telling me it's fine, but I keep telling them that I can feel it in the back of my throat. Dustin, called Martin. Would you take Ruby's two bags up to Lindsay's room? Thanks, and uh, help her up the stairs there. Oh, you're all so kind for letting me visit. Ruby patted Dustin's arm as he helped her slowly navigate the front steps. Margaret peered into the plywood trailer. Where's her groceries? John winced. That's in that little plastic bag there. Three cans of ginger ale and a pack of saltines? That's all she had, said John. She doesn't usually have much in her cupboards. You know that. She liked to walk up to the corner market every couple of days just to get out. She said she hadn't been out since the power went out. I'm surprised she still had that much left. Margaret turned to Martin with a frown. This isn't helping our situation. I know, I know, said John. Why don't you take back the food you donated and the other cans in the trailer? I know it isn't much, but it'll help. Martin gathered up the cans and jars. One armful of food was not a solution to the problem. Thanks a lot, you two, said John. I know this will be a bit taxing, but she had no one else. You're really doing the Lord's work. I know, said Martin, suppressing a sigh. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those who are the household of faith. Ah, Galatians 6.10, said John. Exactly. Well, I'm off to check on the Hamiltons next. I'll be praying for you all. If the power's still out next week, I hope to stop back in before Sunday and see how you're doing. Martin and Margaret waved as the pastor's motorcycle and bouncing trailer disappeared into the dust. 
I'd better go recalculate, said Margaret. This won't help our timeline. Sit over here, Ruby. Margaret pulled a chair out at one end of the dining room table. She glanced at the chair beside Ruby for Susan to take. Martin, would you call in Dustin and Judy? They're out in his car. What did you make for lunch, dear? Ruby asked. Oh, it's nothing fancy. Margaret lifted the cover off the pot. Reheated Spanish rice and beans from last night. But we have some of Connie's sourdough bread to go with it. Ah, rice and beans. That reminds me of when I was a little girl growing up in Maine. We were really poor, so my mother... Hey, sorry we're late, Dustin burst through the back door. We were listening to the radio in the car and charging up Judy's iPod. Judy sat down with one earbud in, looking sullen. Could you get any stations? Martin asked. He handed around a plate of sliced bread. We can't get much on the handheld radio here in the house. Oh, we got one. Dustin stuffed a half a slice of bread into his mouth, but stopped in mid-chew by a look from Martin. He slumped and bowed his head. Martin asked the blessing for the meal, for wisdom, and especially patience. Dustin resumed chewing with a vengeance. We got one station out of mass. I forgot the call letters. They confirmed that the vice president did die in that riot in Baltimore. Still no news on the president's whereabouts. A Mideast summit, wasn't it? Martin hadn't been paying attention to the news lately. En route to it, I guess, said Dustin, between chews. No one seems to know if he made it there or turned back or what. Anyhow, the radio guy was talking about some program to move hospital patients from all the little hospitals to just a few big ones. Boston, Lowell, Worcester, and such. They're trying to rig up temporary power for a few big hospitals. Sounds like they have a couple of wind turbines or solar farm that still work, but they're afraid to connect them to anything. No New Hampshire stations? Margaret asked. I remember one time when I was in the hospital, Ruby began. The doctors said it was just a sinus infection, but I knew. Martin finished her sentence in his mind, in unison with Ruby. But it was my heart pills and my Coumadin that were out of balance. They thought an old woman wouldn't know such things. How did you know? asked Susan, as she scooped a spoonful of rice and beans onto Ruby's plate. Ruby lit up at the question. She had found a new best friend. Even though she never asked Susan's name or why she was there, none of that mattered. Susan was a new person to hear her stories. With Ruby otherwise engaged, Martin returned to Dustin and a sidebar conversation. Did you uh, hear anything else on your radio? Uh, only a little. It was so frustrating, interjected Judy. I just want to know what's going on out there. But no one ever says. How can they just not know where the president is? They blab about highways. They blab about hospitals. But what's going on? Why don't they say? Uh, like what? Martin wondered. I don't know. Normal stuff. Real-life stuff. Like when all the banks will be open again and we can get money and buy stuff. Like when the stores will be open again. When the internet will be back. And are they still taping TV shows when all this is over that we can see our TV shows again? You know, normal stuff. There was a hint of manic in her voice, so Martin thought it best to change the subject. Well, are uh, you two set up okay downstairs? Uh, do you need anything? Yes, Judy raised her voice. Like when will the water be on again so we don't have to flush with that stupid bucket? 
Martin gave Dustin an expectant look. He seemed to understand. I think we're still pretty wiped out from our all-nighter, Dad. Uh, we're going to go catch a little nap. Right, Judy? There was a flash of a look in her eyes that said, Are you nuts? But then she must have realized that in naps there was escape. Yeah, that's it. Tired. She put in both earbuds, fussed with her iPod, and the two of them headed downstairs. So that's why I never made rice and beans for myself, continued Ruby. It always reminded me of those days when we were so poor that my mother wouldn't even buy us an ice cream cone on the hottest day of summer. Oh, that must have been a hard life, Susan said sympathetically. Margaret tried to conceal one of her oh-brother looks. Why don't you help Ruby get settled in her room, Margaret said to Susan. I'll clear the table. I'll get the warm water from the stove for washing the dishes, Martin said. Martin knocked at the office bedroom door and cleared his throat. Come in, said Susan. She sat on the bed with a book in her lap. Uh, hey, uh, sorry to disturb you. I just needed to get something in here. That's okay. I was just reading one of your books. I've, uh, got to get something out of this black cabinet here. It's the, um, gun safe. Oh? Susan sat up, alert. She had clearly not wondered why there was a black metal cabinet in the room, or what might be inside. So maybe you might want to look the other way, Martin offered. Susan hesitated, as if that sounded like a good idea, but she stopped. No, that's okay. If I'm going to be a country person, I guess I need to get used to seeing them. Her last few words had a hesitancy to them. That's true, you will. Martin opened the safe and took out his twenty-two rifle. This is just a twenty-two, he tried to sound reassuring. He opened a box of bullets and put a few in his pocket. It shoots little bullets like these. It's what I use on the squirrels. Oh, that's all. I'm done disturbing you now. You can get back to your book. He turned to go but stopped. Proudly displayed on the center of the nightstand was her jar of olives. Uh... In case you get hungry at night, he pointed to the jar. She chuckled a little, nervously. <laughs> no, it's just that, well, this whole outage thing is still kind of freaky, and I have trouble getting to sleep. So I took out my little jar of olives, and, well, it's actually kind of hard to explain. She looked away and began twisting her hair. Kind of crazy, huh? He wanted to make a joke to lighten the awkward mood. But no jokes came. Her sad, puzzled look shut him down again. Rather than figure out why that look of hers shuts him down, he just stuffed that mystery into his already overstacked mental inbox of things to think about later. He had things to do right now. Uh, well, I guess if that works for you, uh, well, I gotta go. Okay, bye, she said softly, as if it were a secret. While Martin buttoned his coat over his heavy sweater, he had not quite let go of wondering what Susan's sad puzzle look was all about. He had thought that somehow she was done with all of that. Apparently, he was wrong again. Dustin came tiptoeing up the stairs. Judy's sleeping now. She's really, really tired. Hey, where are you going with the twenty-two? I figured I'd go out into the backwoods and see if I can find anything for the pot. Your mother was saying how we needed more protein sources. Oh, can I come? 
Sure, dress warm, though. I'll meet you out by the steps. Martin didn't have to wait long. Dustin closed the front door as quietly as he could. She'll feel better after some rest. I think the whole creepy guy thing has her more freaked out on the inside than she wants to let on. Well, that's understandable. They crunched through the leaves, across the little wooden bridge that spanned the now-dry stream bed. We'll need to get out there by the tree line, along the swamp, I think, Martin said. Won't see much in these short pines. Judy was better after I charged up her iPod, Dustin said. She really misses her tunes and being online. I don't think I noticed before how much she watched TV and spent time on the net. That is, until she couldn't. Kinda seems like she feels lost. Well, maybe if we get her involved in the day-to-day -day stuff, that might help. Might. We were hearing on the radio, scratchy as it was, about FEMA trucks delivering food and blankets at distribution centers in Lowell and Worcester. Judy talked about how much she wanted to see a FEMA truck here, like it was a lifeline to the outside world or something. Okay, Martin whispered and slowed his pace. We need to start being quiet now. Martin stood very still, slowly scanning the line of birches and alders that marked the edge of the swamp just beyond his property line. He saw no movement other than what a gentle wind caused. He motioned for Dustin to follow him back around behind some fluffy white pine so they could re-emerge further down the tree line. Moving quietly on a carpet of pine needles was easy. Avoiding the brittle lower branches wasn't as easy. Their progress was slow. But Martin was okay with that. He wanted to surprise a squirrel or some other furry creature, so slow was good. Dustin tapped Martin's shoulder and pointed ahead and left. Martin didn't see anything until it moved slightly. He caught a glimpse of something down in the brush between some tall beeches. He and Dustin shifted to the right to get a better look. There was certainly something dark in the brush. Every few seconds it would hump up and shift to one side. It was too big for a squirrel. A fox, perhaps? The head seemed pretty big for a fox, too. The scope on the twenty-two didn't help. Too many scrubby beech leaves in the way. Martin moved closer and to the right, his eye to the scope, safety off. His finger was still off the trigger, with the half-thought that it might be someone's dog pawing around. If it was a dog, it was a big one. Martin moved closer, gingerly taking small steps. Whoa, hey, man! A scruffy young man stood up suddenly among the brush, eyes wide, hands in the air. Hey, like, uh, don't shoot and stuff, man. Like, uh, take it easy, uh, okay, uh, amigo, uh, buddy? Martin lowered his rifle. What are you doing here? You could have gotten... Uh, it's a really bad idea grubbing around in the woods when... in, in hunting season... Martin could feel a little tremble in his arms at the realization that he might have shot a stranger, thinking it was an animal. Oh, hey, um, Andy's the name, and I, I wasn't doing anything sketchy, honest. I was just gathering beech nuts here. You got a couple of primo trees right here. He waggled a little cloth bag in his hand. You can put your hands down now, Andy. But for future reference, this isn't public land. My property goes from the fire trail over there, back to the edge of the swamp, and down this way. Oh, yeah, hey, like I didn't know, you know. We were just out doing a little foraging, and there weren't any signs or anything, so I just kept, and then I found these two big beech trees here. We? asked Dustin. Oh, yeah, we got our camp all set up down the little dirt road down there. Andy pointed over his shoulder. 
Yeah, there's a cleared space back there with some big rocks and dirt piles beside a pond. What, the old gravel pit? Martin asked. You and some others have made a camp in the old gravel pit? Oh, I guess so, sure, yeah, gravel pit. Yeah, I guess that's what it was. But why? asked Dustin. That's a pretty desolate spot. Oh, contraire, it's just what we were looking for, said Andy. Away out of the way, far from the artificial constructs of a capitalist tyranny. The what? Martin asked. And who is we? Oh, that would be the rest of our primal group, eh? Me, Ash, Brandon, and some more. We always knew the materialist empire was going to crumble some day. Had to, right? What with the over-leveraged Ponzi financial scam and GMO toxins and all. So we figured that when all that did, there was no more point in going to the classes anymore. So we'd carpe the diem and free ourselves being slaves of the system. Survivors to start the new age. By setting up camp in a gravel pit? Dustin asked, with evident sarcasm. Oh, hey, you gotta look past that, dude. It's the perfect spot for the cell of the age of primal peace to flourish. There's, like, lots of water, a ton of cattails, nut trees, everything that a free people need for a proper paleo life. We just live in peace with nature, nature takes care of us, give peace a chance, you know, like it says in the Bible or something. We're free from all that oppression of the patriarchal industrial imperialism. What? Martin had reached his saturation point for trendy buzzwords. Just stay on the other side of the fire trail, okay? Andy, called a woman's voice. Who are you talking to? Andy half whispered to Martin. Oh, hey, that's Mara. She's like our leader, except that we don't really have leaders because that would oppress the rest of us because we're all equal and free and stuff. Andy called out. Oh, hey, Mara, we're over here. Out from the pines stepped a slender young woman with long, dark hair. She had the smooth beauty of youth and curves beneath tight flannel that were definitely not politically correct. When her gaze landed on Martin's twenty-two, her eyes flashed with a palpable rage. "'What are you doing here?' she demanded. "'Well, I could ask you the same question, seeing as how you're on my property.' Beautiful and annoying was not a combination that Martin had encountered very often. His old-school mind was prone to think of beauty with charm. Property, she spat the word. A white privileged tool of oppression is all that is. No one can own the earth. Annoying was beating out charm. Yeah, well, I'm not talking about the whole earth. Martin wanted to call her cupcake just to annoy her in return. He opted for a neutral diplomacy instead. I'm talking about this little piece of it, said Martin. I was just telling Andy, and I tell you too, my property extends from back that way, where my house is, over to the fire trail, and over that way to the edge of the swamp. I'd appreciate it if you'd stay on the other side. And I suppose you plan to shoot us with your macho death tools if we don't. Her head waggle had a valley girl sway to it. I don't plan to shoot anyone. Just saying. This parcel here is mine. Stay on the other side of the fire trail, and we can ignore each other all day long. How Mr. Bailey feels about you living in his woods is up to him. Humph! Come on, Andy. The stench of fascist oppressors is sucking the life out of this place. Andy followed her dutifully, but looked back and shrugged his shoulders. What the heck was that all about? Talk about attitude. Dustin's mouth was hanging open. What a waste of totally awesome hotness. Dustin, you're married. I know, I know, just appreciating. I wasn't doing anything. Well, no one does something without appreciating first. 
Stop the first, you prevent the other. But you saw her, Dustin protested. I mean, she looked photoshopped. How does a real girl, camping in a gravel pit, manage to look photoshopped? Dustin, you're still appreciating. What good'll come of that, huh? Now you're married. You have to learn to lock the door. How will your appreciating help Judy? Uh, I guess it doesn't. Might ought to leave out the hotness details when I'm telling Judy about this. Yeah, probably wise. Now, while there's still some afternoon left, let's get back to finding a squirrel or something. We can scout that first spot out again. Martin found mental comfort in having an empty woods behind him. Despite the departure of Andy and Mara, the woods no longer felt empty. Now he had to keep an eye out for foraging college kids, at least one of whom had a bad attitude. As they moved slowly through the pines, Martin could hear some rustling of dry leaves. He looked back at Dustin, touched himself on the ear, and pointed. Dustin nodded, touched his ear, and pointed. They slowed their pace to be even quieter. Approaching a hole in the pine boughs, a glimpse of movement caught Martin's eye to the far right. He turned for a better look, but even after waiting what seemed like a long time, there was no other movement. He began to dismiss it as a false alarm, but another leaf moved slightly. It was not the way the wind would rustle leaves on the ground, but an upward wiggle. He studied the spot intently, keeping his eyes moving around the leaf. A gray squirrel's tail flicked up, then disappeared. Then its head popped up. Little paws were feeding some morsel into its busy mouth. The squirrel disappeared again into the leaves. Martin moved out of the pines to get a better position. Dustin moved out beside him. The squirrel hopped over a small oak, not in a hurry, as if it had seen them, but at a casual pace. Martin moved to follow, so the squirrel would not get too much farther away. He timed his movements for when the squirrel was head down in the leaves. Despite his efforts to move silently, Martin snapped a bigger twig. The squirrel bounded over to a big maple, scrambled up and out of sight. Martin moved quicker, unconcerned any longer about making noise, in order to get closer to the maple. His eyes darted around, studying the bare branches. Where would the squirrel emerge? Which tree would it try to leap to? Once in a good position, Martin waited. Dustin stood silently behind him. They waited for several long minutes. He must still be back there. Martin whispered back to Dustin. We'd have seen him jump to another tree or heard him on the ground. Maybe he's in a nest in a hollow spot, Dustin whispered back. Or maybe he's just trying to wait us out on the far side. Tell you what, I'm going to get into position here. You slowly circle around to the left. Keep kind of far from the tree, but keep moving slowly and being really obvious. If he is waiting us out, he might scoot around the tree to stay hidden from you. Dustin smiled. The game was on. Don't go any further than that clump of birch over there, Martin added. I don't want you near the shot angle. Martin settled down on one knee and propped the twenty-two in kneeling position. Dustin moved sideways, then started curving out around the big maple. Martin got himself settled into position sighting through the scope. There was nothing to see but tree bark. He tried to anticipate where, along the right side of the tree, the squirrel might appear. He slowly slid off the safety, so it would not make an obvious click. 
Dustin walked like a casual hiker in a wide arc around the maple. The squirrel did shift around, keeping the tree between himself and Dustin, but he was higher than Martin had anticipated. He had to adjust his support arm higher and squat down lower. The squirrel must have seen Martin's subtle movements and froze. Dustin must have seen Martin's movement as well and realized what it meant. He froze, too. For several long moments, Martin slowly moved the crosshairs up the tree, along the squirrel's tail, and back, finally stopping on its head. A wary black eye seemed to be staring directly at Martin. It was hard to keep the crosshairs still on the squirrel's head. The extended position was not as stable as he wanted it to be. Martin tried to steady his arm with a slow, deep breath. The squirrel twitched its tail. It was about to bolt. Martin held the little rifle tighter to steady his aim and squeeze the trigger. The crack of the shot echoed briefly in the late autumn woods. The squirrel reeled to one side, hung for a moment clutching the bark, then fell. Dustin rushed over to the tree. Martin tried to keep his eye on the spot where the squirrel fell, but he stumbled getting up. "'Did you get it?' Dustin asked. Oh, "'I didn't see it fall.' "'I think I got it. It fell over this way, I think.' They rummaged through the deep leaf litter. Ah, here it is, announced Dustin, pulling the squirrel up by its tail. Darn, shoulder shot, said Martin. I was aiming for his head. Kind of tore up that quarter. Oh, well, it's something for the pot, anyhow. The two walked back to the trail that led to the little wooden bridge. Dustin was the proud trophy bearer. Martin had to admit a little mighty hunter glow. The euphoria could not grow too large, however. It was still just a single gray squirrel. There's barely enough meat on one squirrel to make a day's portion of protein for two people, never mind it being enough for six. He had enough twenty-two rounds for a thousand squirrels. His backwoods, however, wasn't going to supply three squirrels a day for months to come. Even if he had all of old man Bailey's woods, three squirrels a day might occasionally be possible, but for how long? There weren't thousands of squirrels in Bailey's woods. If he brought home a deer, that could be protein for six for a couple of months. He wouldn't have the luxury of driving to some remote, deer-rich patch to hunt. Were there deer in his backwoods? He hadn't seen one for over a year. Nor was he a deer hunter. Who had time for that? Commute to Boston in the dark? Commute home in the dark? No abundant free time for sitting in the woods. Still, he did have slugs for his shotgun. Every deer hunter starts as a rookie, he reasoned. He could scout out old man Bailey's woods, too. That promised better odds of finding a deer. That is, if some ideological college kids hadn't run them all off, he could at least look. They would need a better, more sustainable solution for their protein problem than squirrels. It was unsettling to admit that he didn't have a better idea. He shook off the disquiet by telling himself, well, one day at a time. Hey, Mom, looky what we got, Dustin held the squirrel high as he walked up the stairs. Oh, said Margaret admiringly, followed by another quick, oh, an octave lower. The house rule had always been no dead animals in the house. Animals have to be skinned and cleaned outside before they can come into the kitchen. I know, I know, said Martin. We'll go out back and deal with it. Good, but now that I see you have something, I think I'll change my supper plans. I was going to thaw out that quarter of a chicken for soup tonight, Margaret added. 
If you don't take too long, I'll save that quarter for another day, and we'll have squirrel soup instead. One squirrel would make a rather meatless soup for one of your big usual pots. True. I'll thaw a couple of drumsticks. At supper that evening, Susan looked at Martin, then the pot of soup, skeptically. This is chicken soup, right? You said chicken earlier. Margaret scooped a ladleful. Susan studied the little chunks of meat as they fell into her bowl. Yes, said Margaret. Mostly, added Martin. Susan glanced back at him with narrowed eyes. I used to have a pet chicken when I was a girl back in Maine, began Ruby, but one day it was gone. Mother said it ran away. Well, some sociopolitical idealist college kids living in the woods, and an old lady as a sudden house guest. Guess you don't always get to pick and choose who you share your post-apocalyptic homestead with. If you'd like to check out the rest of the books, that's at mick-roland.com, and I've included a handy buy-me-a-coffee button in the upper right corner. Check it out. Thanks.